Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and monthly co-host Kat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in contributing to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Shelly Joy, and she has written, I think, something like 17 books. And the one book that that sort of stuck out to me when I was looking for guests on Amazon was Tantric Psychophysics, a structural map of altered states in the dynamics of consciousness. I mean, who doesn't want to blow their mind into an internal orgasm? (laughs) Thank you for coming on, (laughs) Shelley. Well, thank you for inviting me, Gary. (laughs) <laughs> so um give me a little bit of a background like what got you into writing about all these different states of consciousness and and some of your experiences with them what got me into it is that what you're <laughs> yeah like where, well where did it it's begin? been a lifelong a lifelong struggle so um you know until recently i've been reluctant to to come out and talk about my background, but it actually has a big, uh, one of the major factors on why I've studied uh, mysticism and uh, religion and the occult, as well as studying science. I I studied physics and Mm -hmm. engineering. I have a degree in electrical engineering, communications mostly, radio waves and things. But um, I was born transgender, I am transgender, and uh, back when I was born, and maybe the first 40 years of my life, it wasn't even a word. So I thought I was the only one like that. And I thought I was kind of crazy, but I felt I didn't feel particularly crazy, but something was really wrong. Uh, my parents, when I was like three or four, fought, fought me in one. They, they said, you have to dress like a boy and you are a boy. And it was kind of depressing, but Hmm. I uh, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic, and I and the nuns, I think when I was six, said, if you pray hard, uh, you can communicate with God and um, and ask him things and and find guidance and things. I said, oh, then that's the way to go. So I I tried very hard to be a good, you know, follow my religious teachings and. Uh, Really, God never really talked to me directly. So, until I took LSD, but that was a long time later. I'll talk about that maybe. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I was I was kind of an introvert, and uh, you know, as the little girls didn't want to play with me. I wanted to play with them, but they thought I was a little boy, and the little boys wanted to play boys' games, which they didn't like much. So I studied a lot. I read. I learned to read, and I, I loved science fiction, especially. And I um, gravitated toward uh, science because I thought, ah, you know, at the time, 
science and the U.S. space race was, you know, there were satellites and uh, new astronauts going into space. And I thought, uh, science, they really are studying things and learning things. And maybe I'll find out why I am the way I am. And maybe I can find a way to fix myself. So I ended up getting a physics scholarship to Rice University in Houston. And I studied physics and mathematics for a couple of years. And then I gravitated toward uh, communications engineering, electrical engineering, uh, because I thought communications, you know, is what I've been looking for, trying to communicate with, with God or something mm -hmm. just to fix myself. Well, when I was 21, uh, I had, it was my summer before my last year of a five-year engineering uh, degree, I went to California um, to work as a programmer, a, a student programmer on a, on a naval missile range near Los Angeles, just north of it. And um, I had married, I had married the year before. I, uh, you know, I, I've always been very romantic, so I loved, uh, even though I felt like a girl, I, I loved women, uh, well loved girls. So anyway, I my I had a steady girlfriend who was an artist, and and I finally confessed to her. I told her, look, I I really don't feel like a normal man, whatever that is. I I really feel like I should have been <laughs> born a woman physically, and I'd like to live as a woman, but I can't. So she's you know I I cried and I was confessing. She said, well, why don't we just get married because that'll probably cure your problem. It sounds like a strange thing, but. You know, and, and as I said, back then, no one knew what transgender wasn't even a word. So so we got married, and I think a lot of transgender people try that, uh, try to find a way to be normal, but it usually doesn't work. I think it probably never works. But we, we loved each other uh, emotionally and intellectually. She's really smart. Her friends, uh, we gravitated toward the artists in California, of course, because she wanted to make it as an artist. And I found myself uh, going with her and some friends to take LSD on, on the beach near Big Sur, beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And I had read in Life magazine that a lot of people take LSD and they, they can talk to God. I thought, oh, my God, I've been wanting to talk to God for years. So, so I'll take some LSD and uh, see what it's like. Plus, plus my scientific curiosity was I'd really like to see what this is like. So at night we took it, uh, I actually took a, an extra strong dose of what's called Owsley acid. And, and wow, it was, uh, well, it's just hard to explain how amazing it was to me. There was an uh, entire uh, dimension of reality that opened up vividly in, in, in color and detail and sound and, and feeling and sensory modes that you, normally you can't even see sense uh you know in, in the normal non non-stoned state uh so after you know the, the next day when i came down i thought my god this this is something that science should really explore i mean i mean this is like the new frontier of of reality it, it can open up so many things for human beings and um i i went back to school and i while i was finishing my engineering degree i looked for other programs in schools that would study consciousness, which I had never really considered before, but I realized consciousness is something that, you know, 
it's a it's an amazing thing and i it's got i so i i actually went to, for one year studying pre-med because i decided if i become a doctor i can get access to psychotropic drugs and explore them from a scientific perspective but i couldn't find any programs uh dealing with that or any research in fact the government was passing laws to make it really difficult to do that. But around the time I got interested in meditation and uh, Asian philosophies, um, because they do explore consciousness. So I think ever since I was like about 22 or 23, I've been collecting books and reading and studying and, and actually trying to experience different ways of, uh, that mystics have described that you can explore consciousness. But also what's really been important to me is I've been trying to understand it in terms of what I know about science and physics and mathematics. Uh, I feel there needs to be a bridge between the two because um, the way I see it is that mystics and saints and um, people who have explored the occult, they're really somewhat like scientists of, of the interior, um, whereas most of our physical science deals with the exterior. Uh, I'll explain that here. You know, space and time, space and time are, have been explored by, by modern science, but external space, external time, anything mm -hmm. that scientists can measure uh, and quantify and uh, observe in space and time is a subject matter for our Western, I call it Western because it was primarily developed in, in Europe, uh, science and and they they have nothing to do with religion or philosophy you know once I asked in an advanced engineering class I asked the teacher what if the electricity in the walls we know we're surrounded by electricity that's vibrating what if it has a, a consciousness what if it's aware somehow and wow the, the, the small class of engineering students most of them were uh, uh, <laughs> very straight looking uh, uh, <laughs> guys. I was the only one that looked like a hippie because I, I was so happy to be a hippie because I could wear long hair and beads kind of feminine. Anyway, they all were quiet. Like you could hear a pin drop. And then the teacher said, you know, that's, you can't ask that in science or engineering. You, you have to go to a philosophy uh, or a religion class or, or a psychology maybe. But, uh, but you just can't ask those questions. Well, that's really true. The science has not uh, made any progress in trying to understand things like, you know, what is the taste of chocolate? Where does that come from? Or what are colors? How do we sense colors? You know, all I've done is been able to follow uh, neurons and, and map neurons and, and nerves in the brain, but they have no idea where where they come together with awareness, you know, how can be, what is awareness? And, and like my professor said, they leave that to, to philosophers. Uh, and, and, but philosophers don't know anything. The ones I've known, very few know anything about science beyond the basic high school science. They don't know calculus and they don't know much about, uh, holonomic and uh, principles. Or, so I've always tried to, understand mysticism uh, and, and from the viewpoint of science, but more importantly, I've tried to understand it experientially, um, which is really the basis of all mysticism and religion, trying to 
trying to feel and understand through through knowledge through being, knowledge through experience. So in my 20s, I explored a lot of psychedelics. I would call them psychotropics or entheogens now. Um, I, I tried uh, pretty much everything you could think of except ayahuasca. Um, I only started trying to experiment with ayahuasca when I was working on my PhD program about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've collected uh, a lot of information from not only Asian mystics uh, in India and Tibet and China, but also Western. There's, there's a tradition of Western mysticism too. And I really uh, respect uh, people who have advanced degrees. It's kind of a prejudice, I guess. But people who study science, but also are interested in consciousness and mysticism. And one of those is Rudolf Steiner. Um, uh, the Waldorf schools, a lot of people may know about them. They were founded by Rudolf Steiner. But Steiner was an amazing person. Um, a lot of his followers, he lived about 100 years ago. Wrote uh, many many books, and he went all over Europe giving lectures on what he called how to get in touch with the higher worlds. He 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 even wrote a book called Knowledge of the High Worlds. And what these uh, I respected him because he actually studied engineering, you know. So he went to the Vienna Institute of Technology. So I thought that was pretty amazing. That he focused the rest of his life on uh, inner inner worlds, and he contacted. He talked about his contact with inner dimensions. Well, I have to explain a little bit about dimensions. Uh, most of us know that time is a dimension. I've heard about it, and that space is three dimensions. Space is like a if you look at a like a cube, uh, a mathematical drawing of the of the x, y, and z axis. That's space. So space has three dimensions, X, Y, and Z. And time is one dimension. So we pretty much live uh, with our brains in linear time and linear space. Uh, that's four dimensions. But there are actually more than four dimensions. And I'm pretty sure that when Steiner talked about higher worlds, he's talking about these other dimensions beyond space and time. Uh, science... Uh, I was really, uh, I think it was about 40 years ago when I discovered string theory and M-theory. It's an advanced uh, set of mathematics that proves that there are other dimensions than time and space. In fact, string theory says there are 11 dimensions. Uh, And there's a newer version called M-theory, which says there's 12 dimensions. And then recently, some of the mathematicians have said, no, there's even more. So what are these dimensions? Well... They, the uh, nuclear physicists uh, observe these dimensions in, in these particle experiments, like the CERN uh, hadron accelerator and cyclotrons and, and uh, particle accelerators. They do these experiments and they smash electrons and protons and neutrons together, and they take photographs of what comes off, what kind of things, the smaller particles split away. And a lot of the particles they couldn't explain because they would go off at a 90-degree angle to, to the particles they knew. And the only way to uh, explain this mathematically was that there are other dimensions that they're uh, unaccounted for. So this is uh, really a basis of quantum physics, 
that there exist other dimensions. Well, how does this apply to mysticism? Well, my contention is that the 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 regions that others that mystics explore when they meditate are when a person takes uh, LSD or or uh, psilocybin or something, or even uh, cannabis. The other dimensions suddenly open up. In other words, Steiner's higher worlds are other dimensions beyond space and time. And, you know, uh, when, when somebody is meditating, I, I started meditating also about practicing meditation about 50 years ago. And I've tried to meditate every day most of my life since then. Um, what it is, is you, you start to be able to uh, learn how to move around in these other dimensions. And these are uh, they're often called inner dimensions because the only way to get to them is to uh, attenuate or, or, or slightly put to sleep or like sleep mode your normal vision, uh, sight and hearing and even your sense of touch. And to do that, mystics have always gone into really like dark caves. The early Christian mystics did that and so do the Tibetans and Indians. You find a really dark cave, or you meditate at night, uh, and you also meditate somewhere that's very quiet. So the idea is to shut down your normal brain activities, which work in space and time. And our brain has been developed in space-time uh, uh, through using our nerves, our neurons and our brain mechanisms. And... Um, I look at it much like a laptop computer or a desktop computer. Our brain just processes information, uh, you know, with words. We look up words, uh, the meanings of words. We connect them in a string uh, sequentially in time. And, but that is not a way to get to these other dimensions. The way to get to the, these inner worlds that Steiner talked about is to quiet down your mind, to put it to sleep for a while. Um, and then I, I was very excited a couple of years ago to read a, a, a study. I read a lot of uh, scientific papers, but this one was on a study of ayahuasca. And these scientists, uh, uh, I think in uh, New Jersey, were trying to see what part of the brain lights up when a person takes ayahuasca. Uh, when they start to have what are called hallucinations or get in touch with these other worlds or dimensions. What parts of the brain are really activated? So they they uh, they they examine the brains. They 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 watch them to see what part light up using these uh, PET machines and scanning machines. And to their surprise, instead of lighting up, the entire brain went cold. In other words, it it stopped lighting up. There was no the activity went down in the brain. So apparently, when you when you're in touch with the other dimensions, uh, experiencing you know, what what people generally call hallucinations or or visions, it only occurs when the rest of the brain stops its normal activities. So that correlates really well with what the mystics do, going into a silent cave. And and so I I meditate usually at night. Uh, I I do have dark shades in in a room. Uh, they're blackout shades. Uh, upstairs where I can make it really dark. I also, uh, especially when I lived in, I lived in Oakland in the Bay Area, so it's a pretty noisy place. I discovered that these little earplugs uh, that you could put, little rubber plugs, you put them in your ear and it, it uh, cuts out this external sound. 
So meditation is, is trying to focus on your awareness, your consciousness, on inner, the inner dimensions of your, of your being. And at first, when somebody's meditating, um, they, they aren't really able to perceive very much. Uh, it's a little confusing. In fact, usually they can't stop thinking. They keep thinking like, uh, how long have I been meditating? So, you know, the moment you start to think in words and, and use your memory, uh, it takes you away from focusing on the inner dimensions. But, um, with enough experience, if, if you practice meditation a little bit every day or as, as often as you can, even for short periods, you know, 10 minutes is, is a long time for meditation if you're really doing it right. Um, it's, it's, uh, the analogy I would say is like, like Helen Keller. Uh, a lot of you probably know that Helen Keller was a woman who was born totally blind and totally deaf. She couldn't hear anything or see anything. And at first the world was confusing. And, but eventually she started to be able to figure out how to sense things within her that let her communicate with the, the world that's, uh, out there. And the same way, uh, um, somebody who practices meditation and contemplation starts to learn how to explore the inner worlds, starts to feel and sense things that are, uh, in fact, mystics call them subtle senses. They, you start to develop subtle, subtle senses, and you start to learn how to tune your mind, tune, tune your consciousness to explore these, uh, what this physicists would, uh, quantum mechanics would, would call, uh, other dimensions. So I've done that myself for almost 50 years now, and I've made quite a bit of progress, I think, but, uh, there's a lot of difficulties in even remembering or describing what happens uh, when you take LSD or when you meditate, because we really don't have words for how to perceive things in these other dimensions. We don't have the English or Spanish or German words. It's not in our language. Mm -hmm. All of our languages are directed on external worlds. You know, the, what we can see and what we can hear and what we can touch that's out there in space-time. Mm -hmm. But I really believe that uh, science and mysticism are starting to come together, uh, not only in my own study and, and writing, but I've developed a lot of colleagues and friends who, who are following the same track, that you really can begin to understand what the basis of religions are and mysticism uh, uh, through understanding science. And... The more you understand the the structure of consciousness, the easier it is to navigate uh, in consciousness when you go into meditation. So there are all these other dimensions, and one thing that's really important is that they're all connected by what we call frequencies. And uh, one of the things is that the sound uh, vibration, uh, music especially, uh, David Bohm, the great physicist, uh, believed that consciousness basically is in these other dimensions, uh, even more than in space-time. And all information that occurs in space-time is shared with the other dimensions uh, through vibrations. So, that, so much so that uh, everything that we, we do or say or experience in space and time vibrates within these other dimensions uh, which are all timeless. In other words, 
they're, they're, you can think of them as being eternal. They're always there side by side with time and space. But normally, uh, the average person doesn't connect with them except maybe at night when they're sleeping, you know, in dreams. And when we dream, we, we go into these other dimensions to, for a while, but we don't really have much control over it. You know, it's sort of random. We sort of, it's like tuning into, like surfing the web. We tune into random uh, web pages, mm-hmm. and those are our dreams pretty much. And they're somewhat connected with uh, our space time life, but they can be quite bizarre at times because we really have no control. Uh, the average person dreaming. Of course, there's, a, there's a, a yoga of dreams, especially in Tibet. There's the ways of uh, directing your dreams, uh, but they take they take uh, uh, practice and experience, uh, like riding a bicycle. You know, not anyone can. I think probably nobody can just get on a bicycle and ride it at first. You have to try, and you have to fall down a bunch of times, and eventually you 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 know your body your your mind and your brain, uh, uh, just because you're using willpower and trying to do it, uh, you learn how to do it. You learn by trying. And that's the same way with meditation. Uh, advanced stages of meditation are really accessible by anyone, but you need to, they need to practice from the very beginning. And unfortunately, in our modern world, very few people actually even seriously try to meditate. Um, Meditation is just an advanced form of prayer in a way because, you know, uh, in someone's childhood, when you learn a religious tradition, whether it's uh, Christianity or or Islam or Taoism, I suppose, um, you're taught things from people in previous generations who have tried to communicate with God or tried to communicate with these other dimensions. Uh, Rudolf Steiner was said there's he called them angels, these entities uh, in other dimensions. And of course, going back to my very first LSD experience, I really felt there were these entities out there that were watching me. And I and it was a little bit scary when you take a very strong psychedelic because when you see something, you realize that it can see you too. You know, so if you're if you're there at night in the dark and the silence and you're experiencing these very powerful beings within your psyche, uh, the inner space, other dimensions, they can see you too. And, and you know, they're not all benign, possibly. They're, there's probably like psychic sharks and there's dangers. I'm sure that uh, some people have gone sort of crazy because they they've, uh, haven't had any defense against some of the negative uh, psychic entities that, that exist. But... Um, I think we're moving into a, a more advanced state in our a civilization where uh, the traditions of mystical uh, practice in India and Tibet and China are starting to end, and Christianity too, they're starting to be taken a little bit more serious by people who have scientific backgrounds. And, you know, the beauty is that we can now, any of us pretty much with a computer, can use Google or Wikipedia and find some in-depth information on things like meditation and Tantra. And uh, uh, that brings up the name of my new book, Tantra Psychophysics. Tantra is mistakenly thought to be the yoga of sex. I think Mm -hmm. most people, when they read the word Tantra, they think, ah, the yoga of sex. 
And there are a lot of Indian statues showing uh, Maituna, uh, a male-female entities copulating. They really shocked the British, who were Puritans when they, <laughs> when they took over India. They, they destroyed a lot of the statues and, and images. But the idea is that Tantra is a practical way of connecting with and traveling with these inner worlds, these inner dimensions that exist everywhere. And the mystics in India have, uh, they're almost, you can think of them as scientists of the inner worlds, scientists of, uh, whereas Western science are, is the science of the external world in space time, uh, mystics are the science, scientists of these other dimensions, these hidden dimensions that they've explored for, for millennia, for thousands of years, many generations, and they've written down uh, techniques that, that worked. Uh, that really is the basis of Tantra is, Tantra, the word itself means like a weaving, a weaving of uh, techniques and practices that uh, allow one to develop uh, a way of, of tuning in to these other dimensions. And so whatever whatever works, uh, tantra, tantra uses. And whether it's drugs or sex or, uh, or subtle meditation techniques like mantra, uh, visualization, looking at the diagrams and trying to visualize them within your head, uh, they figured out that what works is worth pursuing. So it's very practical. Tantra is, is basically, I would say, practical mysticism. Uh, practical ways of of tuning into other dimensions, the hidden dimensions, and establishing links. So, what good is it to establish links for these other worlds? Well, um, for one thing, there's a lot of information. Uh, I think there's entities throughout the universe that we can contact, much like uh, using the the internet. Um, in fact, sometimes I call it the internet without a T instead of internet internet. There's a network of consciousness that we can communicate with uh, if we can establish a link. So it's almost like, a, you know, in the early days of computers, there was no internet. So each computer was stood alone by itself, like, like, a, like our consciousness. Each one of us has our own consciousness, and we think that's it. Mm -hmm. But there's a way of linking all these consciousnesses, uh, and that has to do with uh, learning to meditate. It's like hooking up your Wi-Fi. And of course, Wi-Fi itself is, uh, there's, there's no wires. Uh, it's, uh, it's electromagnetic waves that resonate from one place to another and exchange information. Well, the same thing with meditation. When you're able to tune in to uh, uh, other uh, regions of consciousness, you can begin to communicate with other entities. And these entities could be uh, what some religions call gods or leprechauns or uh, genies. So they, there's all kinds of names people have given to them. But the idea is that there are other entities that you can communicate with and, and you can actually get information from them uh, through things like uh, tarot and, and uh, seances. People of, uh, you know, back in the 1800s and 1900s, uh, uh, were quite into it, especially the theosophists, uh, people interested in what's called the occult. Right. But it's not a superstitious thing. Unfortunately, most of my scientific colleagues dismiss things like seances and 
meditation and, and even prayer uh, because they're so practical. They think all that really exists is, is the things uh, in space and time that we can see and measure and, uh, and, and view and hear. But uh, they're pretty skeptical. Science has become somewhat prejudiced against exploring consciousness, basically. There are a lot of scientists now beginning to try to understand consciousness, but they're still pretty much at square one. Uh, they always kind of default to say, well, we'll study the brain and we'll map the neurons, we'll map the brain, and eventually maybe we'll figure out how, you know, what the smell of good coffee, where does that, how do you smell that, you know? Uh, how do we how do we see red and why is it different than green and blue and and what is love you know that forget about things like love and and hatred and anger and and compassion uh, uh, psychologists try to understand these things but they don't really uh, have much training in physics or mathematics or or uh, electrical engineering and communication or quantum mechanics. So, but I think because information now is becoming so ubiquitous and you can access it with Wikipedia and Google and uh, you can email people across the world uh, and exchange information, I think we're reaching the point where they're starting to merge. And that's what I've worked on, uh, especially for the last 20 years where I've been writing books. I've been trying to write books. Um, I think my first book was called Tuning the Mind. Hmm. And it talks about how you could tune your mind to these other, other dimensions and begin to, to use your mind as an instrument to, to almost like a telescope. But, you know, telescopes look outward visually, uh, but the uh, inner dimensions uh, you can tune, but you have to practice. You know, it's like riding a bicycle, as I said, mentioned before. Uh, you, you need to have the the motivation to take time. And I would say, you know, for those who haven't practiced meditation, just try to set a timer for 10 minutes and sit in a really quiet place. Uh, I always use uh, these Zafu cushions or Japanese or Chinese cushions. I sit on the cushion in the dark and the quiet, usually with my earplugs in. And uh, at first you just watch your breathing. You kind of pay attention to your breathing then you can actually move your awareness to different locations within your body and try to feel, try to reach into your body and feel those areas. Uh, like the center, very center of your brain, your cranium, you can try to feel something there, just generate a, a sense of touch. There's also your throat and your heart center and your, your, uh, behind your navel and your abdomen and down at your perineum. And then at the very top of your head, the fontanelle, there's a little soft spot that babies have where the, the bone hasn't closed, the fontanelle. So these different regions within your body in, uh, in mysticism are called chakras. Uh, in India, they're called chakras. That's a Sanskrit word. They're centers where physiologically you have uh, a whole network of capillaries and endocrine glands uh, bunched together. They're almost like secondary brains. And they can actually then be sensitized and uh, grown uh, to where in, in India they say they're, if you focus on the, your heart chakra when you meditate, uh, every day you spend five or ten minutes trying to do that, you'll start to eventually feel 
new sensations there. And what these sensations are, uh, the chakras begin to grow and uh, they call them, uh, they unfold like flowers. And they begin to function in a new way to receive information and vibrations from what Steiner would call the higher worlds, the higher worlds of consciousness. Yeah, in the West, they, we have the same thing. Most people don't realize it. The, we didn't call them chakras because uh, Westerns I mostly didn't speak Sanskrit back then. But in, uh, in uh, Christian, Christianity, there was the sacred heart of Jesus, the Jesus prayer. And you're supposed to say the prayer while focusing on, in your heart area. It's the same kind of a thing. It was, it's all uh, practical experience of people who tried to get in touch with other uh, dimensions or higher worlds of consciousness through direct experience. Um, in Japan, they talk about the hara, for instance. The hara is in your abdomen. It's the very center of gravity of your body, uh, just uh, in the center of your, your, your intestinal area. And uh, the Chinese Taoists also focused upon that area. And there's a lot of texts in Taoism that say if you you practice meditation by focusing on that center in your abdomen, it will start to eventually start to tingle. You'll feel it tingling. And that tingling means it's starting to wake up. Uh, they called it the cauldron. Uh, if you get it uh, uh, really tingling, it, they call it boiling, the boiling cauldron, then the energy will go up your spine and into your, your brain, your brain cavity, which in India they call the cave of Brahman. There's a, there actually is a cave in your brain. It's called the ventricular cavities. Uh, you can look up ventricular cavities and see it's a very strange looking uh, uh, cavern inside your brain where it's filled with cerebrospinal fluid. And uh, a lot of physiologists are be beginning to think that that's where you really see things. In other words, you don't really see things on your eyeballs. The eyeballs bring in the vibrating frequencies of energy and they're processes it within your brain, the frequencies, and then, then you have a little in interior theater that the, the cavern of uh, what they call the cave of Brahman, the ventricular cavities, um, actually projects the, the visual field. On, and at the, the very back of this cavern is called the pineal gland. Uh, they call it the pineal gland because it looks like a little pine cone. Um, some physiologists say it looks like a little rudimentary eyeball. And that they, they're starting to think maybe this is where what we see really occurs within our brain visually. But there's, there's other, the, all the other senses that are talked about in the Tibetan and Indian mysticism. I've, I've tried in my new book, which is called what, Tantric Psychophysics. It unites the practical uh, teachings of mysticism, Tantra, with uh, physiology and physics. That's, that's the psychophysics, the physics of the psyche. And um, it's a new field is just beginning to open up. And what I've tried to do in my new book is collect as many of the really useful teachings from India and Tibet and Christianity uh, that mystics have handed down through the generations to, to guide people who are trying to develop their sense of inner awareness. Um, you don't really have to meditate for hours. Like some books I read say, oh, advanced meditators will sit for hours and meditate. Because if you just meditate for five minutes really well, 
if you're able to leave the world of space and time, the four dimensions that we normally live in, and enter these other worlds where there's no time and no space, uh, because there's no time, it's it's almost like you're experiencing something uh, in the timeless realm, uh, and no time goes by. In fact, at night when you dream, sometimes you many people experience that the dream seems to have gone on for days, like it's a whole story within your your dream. And when they wake up, they go, "Wow, how did I do so many things?" You know, it's just an hour or two of dreaming, because there's no no uh, no time in these other dimensions. Uh, they're the timeless dimensions. And because of that, just a few minutes of meditating um, can take you deeply into these these higher higher realms, these higher frequency realms. So I I hope I've answered part of the question about. I think I <laughs> tried to tell you everything I know in, in one huge paragraph. I apologize. That's awesome. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, you know, like these traditions have been around forever. Um, and I think like sometimes even the origin of these traditions is kind of mysterious. Um, like I wonder if these mystical traditions originated in these other dimensions and were communicated to humans through consciousness. Yes, definitely. There's a, there's a, a one of the great Tibetan uh, meditation masters has, his name is Dujam Lingpa, Dujam Lingpa. And there's some wonderful books written about him recently uh, by uh, B. Allen Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E, uh, that really explain and translate a lot of Dujam's teachings. And Dujam was taught by by beings in these other dimensions uh, somehow f uh, from a, his childhood he was born in the late 1800s and he lived well into the the 1900s so he's like a very recent uh, Tibetan master <clears throat> he wasn't associated with any of the normal Tibetan lineages like the Kargupa and the Gingma he was uh, taught self-taught but he said he was taught by these by these other uh, uh, masters. You know, in Tibet, there's a whole tradition of reincarnation, mm -hmm. and they call them tulkus. And they believe that an advanced meditation master is able to come back in another body shortly after the first body drops to continue their teaching and their study uh, because they've developed... Uh, like Helen Keller, they, they're able to navigate within these other dimensions and even choose their destination of coming back. Whereas people who haven't really mastered any of that yet, uh, they're sort of come back randomly depending on their, what's called their karma, you know, what good things they've done and, and what their interests are. Um, it's, it's fascinated me. I, I, you know, I, I, I've read a lot of, things by Dujam Lingpa, and um, I, it really does seem like he's trying to teach to teach the modern world how to grow up and join the, the, the universe of conscious beings that fills the cosmos. I mean, everything is, you know, I, I'm a panpsychist. Panpsychism means you believe that everything is, is alive, 
in a certain sense that everything is conscious. Mm-hmm. Not everything is biological you know, with, with muscles and blood and, and you know flesh, but consciousness in uh, uh, crystals, in the sun, there's a consciousness of the planet. In fact, when I, when I took ayahuasca the first time, I, I was amazed that suddenly I felt connected to a, a sort of a, an internet on the planet Earth. Uh, it was kind of, I had the sense that it was shaped like vines or snakes somehow, which that scares some people a little bit. But it was like a huge network of biological consciousness on the surface of the Earth hmm. that connects us all. And I was aware of it, and it was aware of me, and it was like being connected to the Internet. And there was information exchanged. And unlike some of the other psychedelics I've taken, it actually tuned me up. In fact, that's where the I think the idea of plant medicine comes from. You, you may hear a lot of people talk about plant medicine when they're talking about psychedelics, like ayahuasca or, or mushrooms. But by connecting with these other uh, consciousnesses, you, 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 you. They, somehow they tune up your own consciousness. So for a week or two after taking ayahuasca, you feel really good. You feel like you're uh, wide awake, uh, lucid. Uh, you think better. You're more relaxed. Um, it's just a, a quite amazing. Uh, it's a very organic. Uh, uh, I guess I would call it a chemical, a hydrocarbon, but it's. What happens is these chemicals, like let's take cannabis, for instance. Cannabis, uh, you smoke the cannabis or or you eat a gummy or something that has cannabis in it. It's a very complex hydrocarbon molecule. You know, you could if you see pictures of molecules. They look very complicated. But in the heat of your blood, your your blood is like 90, uh, 98 degrees or warmer. The, the, these chemicals break down. They actually start to uh, the molecules break apart, and when a molecule breaks apart, it radiates electromagnetic energy of a wide spectrum of frequencies, very unique frequencies. And these frequencies, uh, many believe, interact with your own the frequencies of your own consciousness. In fact, uh, there's there's a, a growing number of people believe that consciousness is more in the bloodstream than in the nerves. You know, for, for years, uh, scientists say consciousness arose from the, the neurons, the nerves, our nerves. Somehow there were enough nerves at some point and they started to vibrate and suddenly uh, the universe invented consciousness and it's, it's only in animals and humans and nowhere else in the universe. Well, I think that's kind of BS. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. the idea is that consciousness is, is energy it's energy, pure energy that's vibrating. And each of us has a unique uh, bunch of consciousness vibrating energy that's coursing through our bloodstream. And so the, what we, our consciousness is based around the infrared range, which is commonly called heat. But you can actually see a human glowing, a human being with a sniper scope or a, a, what they call infrared uh, a night vision goggles which the military is widely uses all the time. I think firemen use them too to see within a, you know, really dark place. Uh, you can see human beings glowing because this is radiation coming out from the human being. And uh, uh, heat is really very important for consciousness. For instance, if you, 
uh, during the sexual acts, uh, sexual intercourse, people get very hot. They sweat. They get warm. And that warmth is consciousness rising, consciousness uh, uh, getting more intense. And uh, when there's more heat, there's more capability to transfer information, to communicate more, and to, to sense more, to get more sensitive. So I was talking about the chakras before. If you focus on part of your body, um, say your fingertip. Uh, uh, my son had a, had a science fair project once, and uh, we bought a, uh, a little device. You put, clip it on your fingertip, and by focusing on your fingertip, focusing your awareness, your consciousness, the, the temperature of your fingertip starts to, to rise. You can actually raise the, the temperature of your fingertip two or three degrees, uh, which is a really uh, increase in, in electromagnetic frequencies in the infrared. Well, the same way when you focus on, say, your heart or the center of your brain, by focusing your awareness there, uh, the nerves are starting to make the capillaries expand. And when the capillaries expand, the capillaries are the very smallest blood vessels, um, there's 60,000 miles of capillaries within one human body. 60,000 miles. They're everywhere, the capillaries. And they, they, uh, they're full of this warm, coursing, electromagnetic blood. I say electromagnetic, they call it plasma, because, you know, your blood is, uh, when you fill it full of oxygen, it's blue. And when it uses up the oxygen and becomes sort of negative, negatively charged, it turns red. So this blood is coursing through your capillaries, much like a waveguide. Uh, or, you know, the Internet, most of our Internet also acts the same way. We have uh, fiber optical cables everywhere, and they're, they're very narrow. And most of them actually use uh, frequencies around the infrared to transmit the internet uh, digital signals. So uh, nature has already worked on this for billions of years in the human body, billions of years, I guess. So I, you know, the, the thought is that we have within our bodies sort of a network of uh, capillaries that carry uh, warm ionic blood, but more importantly, uh, uh, infrared radiation. So we're full of radiation, which is consciousness. And uh, that is uh, actually the seat of consciousness. It's much more than the, the nervous system, which is much slower. And it acts kind of like a doorbell system. You know, the, a wiring of our body. Uh, we can twitch our little toe by sending an impulse down our nerve wire from our brain to the little toe and moving it. Uh, our sensing things, maybe it will send back the signal that senses but the pure awareness of the body, the sense of love and compassion and thought may be all happening in the bloodstream. So blood was really important to many, many cultures, you know, and the heart also, like, uh, uh, I think blood has been uh, a, a sort of a mystical understanding of, of many mystics that blood is more important than, than meat and the other parts of your body. But it also, infrared radiation coming out of your body Interacting with the infrared radiation of another person is a way of communicating. You know, how do animals, how do dogs, for instance, know that their master is coming home? Uh, quite often, dogs will start getting all excited when the, their master is like two or three blocks away driving a car on the way home. 
There's no way the dog could know it except by perhaps through this radiation that's going out at the speed of light uh, that that passes through the atmosphere. And you know, the idea of telepathy is not so far fetched if you start to think it may be like radio waves, uh, because we can pick up radio waves from thousands of miles away. Um, I since I since I was a teenager, I've had a ham radio station. You know, I used to listen to shortwave, and then I learned how to build a transmitter to actually communicate and send radio waves back and forth. But right now, there's a big thing in ham radio to communicate with very low power. And uh, people try to communicate using five watts of power, and they do that using computers. The computer encodes the radio waves in a very sophisticated way, and so it can be picked up by a radio station far away. So I've actually communicated from Northern California to uh, a, a, a base in Antarctica, the ham radio operator mm-hmm. in Antarctica, um, and, uh, using five watts of power. To me, that just blew my mind because, you know, our heart, every time our heart, our heart beats, our heart is putting out five watts of electromagnetic infrared radiation. Uh, five watts, if our heart's putting out five watts, why can't our heart, our, our infrared radiation, interact with the hearts of other people throughout the world? And when you think about it, there's about 7 billion people. And if each person's heart is putting out 5 watts of power in the infrared, that's like a 35 billion watts of power. That's enormously, uh, enormous amount of radio waves. They are radio waves. Infrared waves are radio waves. Uh, just as much as ultraviolet radio waves. Uh, the radio waves that we can see, of course, are are what we call, we call it light, because there's a narrow band that we can see, red, green, blue, yellow, you know, violet, that's picked up by our, our the rods and cones of our eyes. I'm sorry if I'm throwing out way mm-hmm. too much information and jumping around here, but, you know, I tried to say all this in my 17 books, and I'm still <laughs> writing. I, I still want to try to make it more clear. I put lots of diagrams in my books, um, but for people who really want to learn how to meditate and, and, and get lots of information on different techniques, I've tried to put a lot of techniques uh, in the, the new book, Tantric Psychophysics, which you can find on Amazon.com if you look up Shelly Joy, J-O-Y-E, um, and you can help me pay off my student loan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually got my, got my PhD about seven years ago. Uh, I didn't begin the PhD until after I retired. I, most of my uh, working life was doing software engineering, mm-hmm. uh, writing uh, software for data warehouses. And uh, I retired about 12 years ago. And and I decided, you know, it's, I've been studying in my spare time. I have so many books on consciousness and mysticism. I would love to get a, you know, really do serious research and write a dissertation and I found the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco that was fostering interdisciplinary studies. So basically, they said I could I could use science and religion and mysticism and, and mix them all together and try to weave an understanding of uh, kind of a new frontier of understanding consciousness through approaching it from multiple directions. Of course, I had to get student loans to do that. So. But it was fun, 
And I think it was worth it because, uh, you know, one thing, when you learn something, it's you, you never lose it. You've learned it. It's knowledge. You can share it with other people, but it never, you know, you, you can't lose it like the stock market might lose, you know. Oh, my, I've lost all my money. Well, you can't lose what you've learned and knowledge builds upon it. The more you know, the, the more sort of, uh, you, you get more, you find more peace through understanding. You know, I think that's why many older people seem to be a little bit more calmer and centered than very young people because young people are still trying to figure out, you know, all the basics and that life can be very confusing, but through experience, experience is the best teacher. That's why it's so important for to practice meditation. Um, and I often tell people, you know, begin with the, the, the religions, religious practices you learned when you were a child. You know, if you were brought up as a Christian, um, say some of the prayers when you begin to meditate. Because they'll act uh, as sort of a... Uh, sort of an interface between your normal everyday thinking of, you know, thinking about what, what you need to eat tonight and thinking about taxes that are coming up or thinking about the world situation or worrying or trying to remember memories of things. Saying a prayer allows you to focus on an intention to get in touch with a higher world. The higher world usually is God or, or, or the angel. Hmm. Um, so the prayers connect you with your childhood and also with all this own meditation with prayers, uh, uh, a mixture of Christian prayers, some uh, Indian mantras, a couple of simple mantras, and, um, and even a couple of uh, prayers in Latin that I learned. Um, and then, then you get your mind quiet. You kind of let go of the prayers. You're sort of in this floating space between... Uh, the external world of space and time and the internal world of the other dimensions. And at some point, it's like falling asleep and suddenly beginning to dream. Suddenly you're in those other dimensions. And if you're like Helen Keller, you've learned how to navigate those other dimensions. And you begin to communicate with these other entities, call them angels, uh, you'd call them the collective unconscious, uh, the, the noosphere, uh, there was a Catholic priest called Teilhard de Chardin, who developed the idea of the noosphere, uh, the collective consciousness of humans on the planet Earth. And there are collective consciousnesses. In fact, each one of us is a collection of all the consciousnesses within our own body. You know, our liver has its own sort of consciousness. Uh, our, our, our digestive system is a living thing that in some sense has its own self-awareness. Uh, and so, you know, these, these things can run themselves without our primary ego having to worry about make sure that heart keeps beating at the right space and, you know, make sure your body's this certain temperature and make sure you're digesting that food in your stomach. No, it's all like a, a network of consciousnesses making up our one single self. So we're, we're a collection of that. But we're also, there's group consciousnesses like you know, the Republican Party, or, although maybe that's divided up into a couple different different groups right now, uh, are a, a religion, are um, a chess club, are a ham radio club, are your church group, are a class. Uh, I have a good friend who wrote a book about uh, 
uh, his experience, uh, he's also interested in consciousness. And in fact, he, he took quite a bit of LSD uh, in his research himself. But he believes that uh, after a few classes, uh, a, a certain class, a group of students starts to develop a collective a group consciousness in the classroom. And people need to be belong to a group consciousness. Uh, um, they find it very uh, kind of reassuring to feel part of a group, to identify with that group. And it's a blessing and a, and a curse because that's how we have people who are now, there's a group playing, you know, loves to talk about QAnon things. Or there's a, there's a group that likes to talk about socialism, I guess. Um, there's groups that talk about invading other countries. So consciousness is an amazing thing. We don't really have uh, uh, really good skills connecting our, our government to understanding of consciousness. So all we can do as individuals is try to develop our own consciousness and learn to be somewhat independent, but also learn to connect to the consciousness of the planet Earth, you know, um, like through ayahuasca is a good way, I would say. Um, in fact, you know, I've, I've got something that uh, some people are quite upset about. But one of my ideas is that I think that high school students should at some point be initiated into some kind of a psychotropic or entheogen. You know, make, make sure the high school student is, you know, fairly balanced and intelligent and, you know, they know what they're getting into and they, they study something about consciousness and then maybe they have a, a, a guided uh, experience of psilocybin mushrooms uh, or ayahuasca. And it would open up their understanding and experience to this much wider world that we live in, the cosmos of consciousness that we, we swim in like, like fish in an ocean of consciousness. But, you know, our, our current society tries to prohibit that and to keep people thinking in terms of space and time and getting a good job and, and uh, following, you know, traditions of our, our group, our, our group think, you know, whether it's uh, our local community or our family. But I think students should find out that there's a wider world that can be explored and developed and that they can connect to. Um, all of the writings of Rudolf Steiner talk about this, how important it is for education. That's why he developed the Waldorf schools to, to teach people to be more than, you know, limited dimensional beings, to open up their awareness to wider dimensions of experience and understanding. And um, I think uh, that's probably all I have to say. <laughs> Just kidding. But <laughs> I think I'm running out of steam here right now. <laughs> Unless you have any good questions. Um, it's interesting. You know, <laughs> you mentioned, um, you know, education and the government. Um, I used to believe that, but I do believe now um, that the government does not want people to be aware of their full consciousness, basically, so they can weaponize it. And they have weaponized it. Um, one of my guests was um, the guy who wrote the handbook for Project Stargate, the remote viewing program for the CIA. And he taught me. I took one of his classes, and he taught me how to remote view. 
And I was blown away by, one, the results of it. And the second thing I was blown away by is the government is fully aware. So so they know. Yeah, I think uh, I had that sense myself back when I was living in New York in my late 20s, and I was really seriously getting into meditation, and um, I was trying to learn Sanskrit even. Suddenly I realized if I'm able to begin to sense these inner dimensions, what if the CIA and the government uh, already is doing this? And like I said, if you're aware of something in these other dimensions, it is also aware of you. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, you can't see somebody without them seeing you in these other dimensions. So that got me a little worried for a while. But then I thought, well, I can't really worry about it and let it stop my, my inner growth. Um, just be aware that that might be a possibility. Um, I know Dean Radin actually worked for the Navy. Dean Radin is a, has a PhD and he studied consciousness and he'd written a lot of books about it. He worked for the Navy and he's got some classified projects he did which uh, have something also to do with remote viewing. And uh, so definitely, at least the Navy was looking into this, and that was, he was working on that 20 or 30 years ago. So uh, there are a lot of super top classified things going on. Maybe there's a psychic war going on between the U.S. and Russia. We don't even know. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's a psychic not. war going on between I, countries. I think, I think there's a psychic war going on between the people who are actually ruling this planet and us, the slave race. I don't even think the countries actually yeah. exist. I, th I think the countries don't exist. I don't believe the political parties actually exist. You know, that that is all there for simple entertainment and separation. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they know. I have no doubt because I've experienced it and I've learned from somebody who was an insider. So, I, you know, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's completely strange. Um, you know, I, I think one of the, there's, there's two big threats to um, the people that are controlling this planet. One is human beings coming full, becoming fully aware of our consciousness and that we are actually not just, we don't exist just in a single dimension. And the other thing I think that really bothers them is the human being's ability to have telepathy. I think yeah. those two things yeah. are a huge threat. You know, to there's a whole thing of, uh, Rudolf Steiner actually talked about, say the planet Earth has um, higher level consciousnesses than human beings. Yeah, he called them angels. He mm -hmm. said there's a, Michael the Archangel is one of the uh, big players in the planet Earth. It's a consciousness. It doesn't have a human body or a body you can see because they're mostly in these other dimensions. But, with, but within and surrounding the planet Earth, maybe their origin is down in the core, which is like the very core of the planet Earth is a glowing uh, sphere of nickel, uh, 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 crystal and nickel that's glowing and molten. Uh, but it, maybe it has a certain consciousness. But uh, Steiner said there are a number of angels, he called them, uh, that uh, run the planet Earth, and some of them are, are warring. They're, they're, they don't, you know, it's just like the humans fight in war. Some of these higher consciousness 
don't agree with each other and do things. Um, some mystics, like uh, G.I. Gurdjieff, said that we are basically food. Uh, you know, everything is food for something else. Mm-hmm. And that the human psyche, each human's consciousness, is. he said they were food for the moon. But other people have said, no, we're, you know, when we die, we become food for uh, what's called the noosphere, the, the thinking, uh, conscious, a certain level of, of the planet, planet ecology. So that, uh, that wars are really good in a way because what it is is the planet is reaping all of this, uh, you know, each consciousness is maybe like a grain of wheat. Uh, the wars are reaping the consciousness of human beings hmm. and then they become food for this higher level entity, conscious entity. Uh, each human sort of joins into that one. Now, there's interesting things to speculate about. But to me, the most important thing is trying to experience directly, communicate directly, and that way you will learn the most uh, of what's going on, uh, rather than sort of being blind to all these other dimensions. Right, and I agree and with basically, that Basically, we just live because, our lives. Because one of the things that you said that was really definitely true is you can't necessarily put this stuff into words. The only way to really understand it is to have direct experience with it. And you're only going to achieve that through experimentation. And there's a whole bunch of different ways of experimenting. There, there's drugs, there's meditation, there's sensory depri- deprivation. Um, I, I mean, what would come my choice is sort of just using binaural beats because I can easily get my ba- brain into an alpha state that way. Um, but there's all these different methods, trance, hypnotism. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, even sports sports are a way of getting out of your normal ego. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can, I think a, a, a like an Olympic athlete has to reach into these other dimensions where they're they're just one with the world, uh, and the thoughts and memories don't slow them down and distract them from what they're doing. So it's kind of a meditation, uh, definitely a, a form of a meditation. Any kind of a sport. Um, our art, art is also the same way. Yeah. I'm also a painter. You can find a, see a lot of my paintings on my website, which is shellyjoy.net. S H E L L I J O Y E dot net. I have a lot of my paintings, which are um, abstract paintings of, of of higher worlds of consciousness. I, I have to say, um, I've been working on them since the early '70s. When I lived in New York and I used to hang out with some of the Warhol people, I started painting as a way of exploring consciousness. And uh, the only way to really paint well is to get out of the way, get your ego and your your thinking mind out of the way and just sort of be one with the paint and the flow of things. Um, you know, I'm going to have to go pretty soon. I have something else I'm going to oh, okay. have to do in a point. Well, 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 now that you've uh, already mentioned it, what I'll do is I will put I a link to your website in the notes to this episode. Um, it was a pleasure talking with you and thank you very much for coming on and we'll definitely do this again sometime. Well, thank you, Gary. I'd like to do it again. Yes. Awesome. And just hang on for one moment and I'm just going to play the outro. Gmail.
www.tonyhoney.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on film that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. Thank you.